For parents and those considering becoming parents, is genetic knowledge empowering or fear-inducing? And are we headed towards more questions than answers? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Book Club on ReachMD. And with me today is Bonnie Rockman, a former Time journalist who many of us have followed on her online series, Kids and DNA. And she's just written her first book, The Gene Machine, How Genetic Technologies Are Changing the Way We Have Kids and the Kids We Have. Thank you very much, Bonnie, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Why did you write this book and for whom? I wrote this book because of an experience that I had when I was newly pregnant. And at the time, I was living in North Carolina, and my background is Ashkenazi Jewish, so of Eastern European heritage. And I had gone to my OBGYN to ask about what sort of carrier screening I needed, and I was told that I just needed Tay-Sachs screening. And because I'm a journalist, I had done some research ahead of time, and I actually knew that at the time, this was back in 2002, there were about nine or so Jewish genetic diseases, so-called Jewish genetic diseases, that Jews of Eastern European ancestry should be tested for. And so I politely tried to tell him what I had learned. You can pretty much find anything you want on Google, and it's of kind of questionable validity often. But the information that I was sharing with him was from some Jewish genetic disease centers at universities in New York City. So he just blew me off. And, you know, I could tell that he didn't think that I needed that sort of testing. And so it really was kind of a wake-up call. And I realized that women are getting different recommendations depending upon where they live in the United States. And to me, that really reeked of inequity and unfairness. And so I decided to look into that more. One of the questions I was going to ask you later, but it leads right into this. In your book, you met many inspiring and dedicated geneticists. And with the flood of the internet knowledge about this and it being promoted direct to patients, are there really enough physicians like myself who are really equipped to handle this. The last time I looked, there were two geneticists in Wyoming and in Alaska, and two for every two million people in a country like Nigeria. So your book is wonderful, and there are many examples of very knowledgeable geneticists, but as a country as rich as ours, really equipped to the flood of information that we're getting? I think the answer is pretty clear, no matter who you ask, and the answer is really no. I would say not only are there not enough geneticists, but a real lack is the shortage of genetic counselors. So I like to, I sort of joke, I mean, after doing all this research, I like to tell people that if you want job security, you should go into a genetic counseling program. There are, um, so there are not enough people who have specialized insight into genetics. And so what is happening is that internists like yourself, regular OBGYNs are connecting with this onslaught of information about genetics and being presented with this constantly evolving array of genetic tests. And yet they don't have a really good grasp 
of what all these tests can reveal and what the nuances are between the different tests and why they're being offered in the first place, one thing I was really surprised to find is that genetics plays a very small part in a medical student's education, depending on where you go to med school. You know, obviously, it can range from medical school to medical school. I live here in Seattle at the University of Washington, and I think there's just one introductory genetics class that's required. Every day, we are hearing about more advances and more gene discoveries associating genes with various conditions. And the more information that is out there, the more there is a need for people who understand this information and the implications and can explain it and can kind of translate that for patients. And we don't have enough of those people. Our audience is primarily physicians and how can they use this book? But maybe more importantly, how about the general public? How can people who are considering having children use this book and how to not misuse the aggressiveness of the marketing world in getting information before they've been adequately counseled? I really feel that everyone who is considering having a child could benefit from reading this book because it explains how pregnancy is so different from what it was like even a generation ago. And there's this line that I use when I give presentations, when I give book talks, and I say, this ain't your mother's pregnancy. I'm 45, and when I was born, my mom, she didn't even know if I was a boy or a girl. And now knowing gender is nearly everyone opts to know gender. But there are so many additional things that you can potentially learn, diving deep, learning all about various genetic mutations that can indicate the presence of disease or indicate increased risk decades down the road. And I feel like there is not enough information of prospective parents or expectant parents so that they are fully informed about all these tests that are now available and that are constantly changing. So what is available today is not going to be the same test that is available six months from now. So it's almost like you need an MD to just stay on top of all the tests and to be fully informed. And should somebody talk to prospective parents about the information that they may get? Do they really want all the information? When they get the information that they get, will they know how to process it? If there are some genetic variances, I know this is all a lot of questions, but they're all kind of related with you make this decision, you get the information, what do you do with the information? And if there are variances, do you give it to your child? So how do you answer that? Which I think is one of the most perplexing and difficult things. What I definitely try to emphasize in the book is that these are all very, very personal decisions. And so I think that what has really evolved over the past several years is the informed consent process. So there's a real emphasis that there has not always been. Currently, there is an increased emphasis on making sure that patients or parents of young children or babies fully understand all the possible consequences of learning the information that they are requesting. And furthermore, when there is a test like exome sequencing or genome sequencing that is so incredibly comprehensive, it's important that there be informed consent so that parents can understand 
and be well-informed about what sorts of results they want to receive. So do they want to receive results only related to the particular condition, the, the reason that their child is being tested in the first place, or do they want other what's called incidental findings or secondary findings that could also be clinically significant but are not related to the initial reason for testing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickern, and joining me today is Bonnie Rockman. She has written the very intriguing and informative book, The Gene Machine, How Genetic Technologies Are Changing the Way We Have Kids and the Kids We Have. You know, so many pregnancies in the United States in particular are IVF children. They are an embryo, and from that embryo, we now can do pre-implantation genetic diagnosing, what's called PGD. Do you think this is opening up a slippery slope that people are beginning to think about designer children? And where does this fit in in the decision-making process? PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, has been around for several decades, and it's always been used, I feel, in a very circumspect manner to help a family with a particular disease avoid transmitting that disease to future generations. So unlike, I think, the definition, what we think of when we say designer babies, PGD is used just for one disease. So you're looking, for example, say cystic fibrosis runs in your family and you want to avoid having a child with cystic fibrosis. So once you would create these IVF embryos, an embryologist would analyze a few cells from each of the embryos to determine which of them have the CF mutation. And then those particular embryos would be set aside or discarded, and only the ones without the CF mutation would be transferred to a woman's uterus. So in something like that, there's a known entity that you are looking for and you are trying to avoid. So I think that in society, when we talk about designer babies, we're talking about building someone with Einstein's brains and with Michael Jordan's athletic talents, Simone Biles and her amazing gymnastic aerial flips, and opera singer's beautiful voice. So we're talking about kind of creating this perfect, extremely talented, beautiful child. And PGD is something very different. So you're using it to avoid just one specific disease. However, in the future, I think that what we have to be thinking about as a society is how far are we willing to go to create a quote-unquote perfect children. There was news of just earlier this month about scientists in Oregon and colleagues in a couple other countries who were successful at eradicating a genetic mutation from embryos. So they were using gene editing techniques, CRISPR, to basically make embryos that had a mutation, make them not have a mutation. And they were pretty successful at doing this. So that, of course, raises the question about where do we go with this technology? So most ethicists, probably all ethicists, think that this sort of gene editing technology or PGD should be used only to help eradicate or control disease. But it's inevitable in a free market society that these technologies, once they're perfected, could be used for other non-health 
related reasons, such as if we're able to figure out genes for athleticism or genes for intelligence, you can imagine where that might go. I think the important thing to remember here is that so many traits that we consider desirable in our society, like beauty or intelligence or athleticism, there is no one particular gene for them. So when we're talking about cystic fibrosis, that's a single gene mutation that results in the disease. But for something like intelligence, IQ, having a killer jump shot, there's not one gene that correlates specifically with that talent or that skill, making it really, really difficult to try to inculcate those traits or those characteristics into an embryo. You know, you mentioned CRISPR, and that is an amazing breakthrough. And I can't just leave it without saying that in, certainly in China, they are beginning to do genome editing on embryos. Those embryos are not allowed to, to mature, but they are editing them in an attempt to affect athletic ability and intelligence. It's frowned upon in an ethical way in some parts of the world, but not in all. The other questions I wanted to ask you, too, is we now can get fetal DNA from maternal blood very early in a pregnancy. And this is being merchandised or marketed or commercialized directly to people. Before, to actually get fetal material, it involved an amniocentesis, and certainly had a certain risk of precipitating an abortion. What do you think about this direct-to-consumer ability to get fetal DNA? And, and you could also expand that to my internal medicine practice of people sending me their DNA that they've gotten at the local drugstore. What do you think about this access that people have? Right, right. So I, I do want to just clarify something a bit. As far as I'm aware, there is no direct-to-consumer access for something like non-invasive prenatal testing, which is, I believe, what you're referring to. So these blood tests that in the first trimester use a maternal blood draw to look at fetal DNA and determine with a pretty high degree of accuracy whether her fetus has Down syndrome or other trisomies or other chromosomal conditions. So that is something that is just offered through a doctor's office. However, I think that what is absolutely going on is that a number of labs and companies have really jumped on the bandwagon and are offering this non-invasive prenatal testing, and they're marketing directly to pregnant women. There is a great deal of confusion and I would say misperception about how accurate the test is. And there have been several articles that have pointed up that in certain situations, women, we're not talking about a huge number here, but there have been some instances where women have aborted fetuses that they thought were affected by, say, Down syndrome, and then it turns out that the fetuses were not affected by Down syndrome. And the reason that these mistakes are going on is because these blood tests, while very accurate, are still not diagnostic tools. So they are not the same as an amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. And there was confusion even among the medical community. And this is kind of where we get back to doctors, just standard OBGYNs being expected to be experts in genetics 
so the doctors did not actually understand that the tests were not diagnostic. So I think that is improving now because there is better education about the fact that these tests are absolutely not diagnostic and before a woman will, should take, um, you know, would, uh, for example, opt to terminate her pregnancy, that she absolutely needs to get a confirmation via some diagnostic procedure. I really appreciate you clarifying that for all of us, including myself. Before we leave, I'd like you to just touch on this concept of the vulnerable child syndrome. Does it exist? And where it comes from? When you get this information, is do you begin to treat your child differently, even though it might even not have a disease associated with it? How do you pass that information on to the child as well? So that is um, the vulnerable child syndrome, I think, is something that has been uh, studied for decades. And what it really consists of is if you know that your child is sick, will your relationship with that child change? Well, let's say we're talking about sequencing every infant's genome, which is something that is actually currently being researched for university medical centers throughout the country. They're looking at the implications, at the feasibility of sequencing newborn genomes. So say we did that and we have a purportedly healthy infant, and then you would find out that there is a genetic mutation that is associated with a really bad disease. So would you as a parent then, might that affect parent-child bonding? Might that affect how you treat that child in relationship to his or her siblings. And there's been a good deal of research on that, and it can really cut both ways. So in some instances, the parents are kind of like uber helicopter parents. They're so worried about this child that they are always hovering and fearful of letting the child kind of explore on her own and do things that another child might be allowed to do. And in other cases, um, it just cements the bond even stronger than perhaps it otherwise would have been. So it really kind of remains unclear, but I, I suppose the overarching research shows that that is not a bad thing to know information about your child. It doesn't mean, I think there was fear that parents would abandon their children or, or not love them, not connect with them, and that really has not been borne out. Well, I think your book, and I encourage physicians and parents or parents-to-be, really read your book and begin to examine that with knowledge there are consequences, that knowing your child's DNA and knowing your own DNA does come with a certain kind of responsibility. Where it takes you may not make your life easier and certainly open up a lot of questions for you. Absolutely. So again, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download the podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.